Please be seated. Welcome to Christ the King this morning. Uh, the, I mentioned some weeks ago that uh, my grandparents saved all the letters that I sent to them uh, throughout my childhood, mostly thank you letters for one various uh, present or another. And they had all saved these and they came back to me uh, uh, as, they, as they all passed away just uh, several years ago. But to my surprise, uh, not only did many of you mention that, many of you had the same, very same experience. Many of you, your own grandparents, did the same for you. I thought that was very interesting. About four or five of you had a similar experience. Um, but in addition into these uh, cadre of letters that came back to me, there was a note included from my grandfather. I've referenced him uh, several times before he passed away at, at the age of 105. And for some reason, he wrote a note. And he stuck that note in this file, which kept all the letters uh, that I had sent to him. And he didn't send it. So it just stuck, stayed there. Uh, I don't know if he just forgot or uh, wanted to pass it on to me at some later date. But there it was. And so when all these letters came back to me, not only were there all these little thank you notes from me, but also a note from my grandfather uh, after he had passed. And you can imagine what a treasure that was. Uh, some very practical words of advice, like uh, you should cut your hair. Uh, some terms of endearment, or some uh, encouraging words for, for me as I, at that stage, I was uh, heading off into college. Uh, and some practical wisdom that he had accumulated throughout the years. It was just such a, a, a real treasure. I still have it and will have it uh, forever. It's very precious to me. And it's with that type of reverence that we turn to John chapter 17. John chapter 17 is, if you have your Bible open, you can turn to you. My heading refers to this chapter as the high priestly prayer. What this is, is the last words, or some of the last words that Jesus tells uh, us. He prays for himself, and he prays for his disciples. He prays for the church. Uh, immediately before he goes to his passion and his death and his crucifixion. So chapter 17 is labeled the high priestly prayer. Chapter 18, uh, that my heading says, the betrayal and arrest of Jesus. So we really are entering kind of hallowed ground. Jesus' last words of encouragement for his disciples, his last words of encouragement for you and me. The Archbishop William Temple, I think has rightly said that this uh, passage of... Uh, Jesus' final prayer is the most sacred passage of all of Scripture. Just like that note from my grandfather, we find his final words of encouragement, his final words of, his final, uh, words of advice for the church that will follow after he is gone. It's a huge chapter. Uh, one preacher preached a years worth of sermons on this subject and compiled those sermons into a book of 435 pages long, all on this sermon. So we can't do anything more than simply touch on some of the big themes that we find present. But I think if we approach this letter, this, this final prayer, under the following headings, it can make sense to us. And those headings are, first of all, to whom was Jesus speaking? Second of all, what does he call us? And third, what does he do for us? Two, three big questions that I want to consider with you this morning. To whom is Jesus speaking? So let's jump in right there. The, it, I think it'd be helpful to have your Bible open in front of you. And you can see that this passage is really it's three separate intercessions, the first of which he prays for himself. 
That's verses 1 through 5. The second of which, he prays for his disciples. That's the passage we read, verses 6 through 19. And then finally, he prays for the church that will come uh, in the future, verses 20 through 26. And it's in that middle section that we're going to spend our time. Who is Jesus addressing right before he goes to his passion? He is addressing his disciples. No surprise there. But what I think you will find surprising what I think you'll find noteworthy is what makes these disciples his disciples. All right, so he's tell us he's addressing his disciples. Now I want to consider with you what is the defining character trait of these disciples. Right, so these are the 12 people who stayed with him throughout his earthly ministry. What is it about them that identifies them as his disciples? And here it is. Follow along with me in verse 8. A lot of different pronouns. I'm going to just uh, labor who the pronouns refer to. Verse 8 says this, For I, that's being Jesus, have given them, the disciples, the words that you, God, gave me. They have received them, and they have come to know in truth. And here it is. Here is the defining character trait of the disciple. <laughs> Here is the defining trait. Uh, they have come in, in truth to know that I came from you. There it is. That I, Jesus, came from God. Now, if you back up to chapter 16, these are the very words that the disciples say about Jesus. Let me read chapter uh, 16, verse 30. The disciples say, now we, know, uh, now we know that you came from God. And these very words of, uh, the, of, G of the disciples' faith, Jesus echoes back to them. So what is the fundamental characteristic of these disciples? Simply this, they have grasped something of the special relationship between Jesus Christ and God. That's it. All right, in your sermon notes, they have been receptive, the fundamental attitude of a true disciple, and now they have grasped the crux of revelation, the identity of the Son in relationship to the Father. Do you see that? That's what makes them a disciple. I believe that you came from God. Now, Here's the interesting thing. Robbie Pruitt is in the ordination process. And part of the ordination process in our church is ordination exams. And so Robbie's been grilled on various subjects. One of those, I'm sure, is who is Jesus. And if Robbie were to put on that paper, Jesus came from God, I think the ordination committee would uh, rightly say yes. But can you, can you give us a little bit more? And certainly there is much more that could be said. But here we find a simple and solid, basic foundation, even expressed in fairly clumsy and inelegant terms. Jesus, I believe you came from God. You don't need a PhD. You don't need fancy theological language. All you need is this. I believe there's something special about Jesus Christ, that he came from God. Recall one of the most important questions asked throughout scriptures is this simple one of who do you say that I am? This is found throughout Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus pulls his disciples aside and says, now what about you? Who do you say that I am? And these stories I'm referencing, uh, the disciple Peter says, I believe you are the Christ. You are the Son of God. To which Jesus responds, yes. Yes. And on this rock, on this solid foundation, on this basic foundation, I will build my church. Apparently, 
this statement, Jesus, I believe that you came from God is a sufficient starting point for all true disciples. And so what about you? What about me? Who do you say that he is? It seems strange that so much should rest on so little a question. But here in this passage and here throughout the rest of the New Testament, one of the most important questions that you and I can reflect on is, what about you? Who do you say that he is? And here we find a basic, inelegant, yet adequate response. I believe that he came from God. If you have believed that in your heart and confessed it in your mouth, then I have good news for you because the term of endearment that Jesus uses to describe those who make this basic confession, I find surprisingly intimate. So first we've considered to whom Jesus is speaking, and now we're going to consider what he calls us. He calls us simply his own. These little valentine hearts that Megan showed us as we began Somewhere in this box, there's going to be a valentine that says, you are mine. And the same little trinket that we pass to our childhood sweethearts in fourth or fifth grade is the same thing that Jesus Christ says to all of his disciples. You're mine. Verse 6, I have manifested God's name to the people whom you gave me. You gave them to me. By inference, they are mine. We are his. Susan Yates has uh, the author of many books. She's the author of John, our spouse of John Yates, the rector of the Falls Church. Written numerous books on parenting, and she has said, if a child ever asks you why you love them, if a child asks a parent, why do you love me? that parent should have one quick and easy response. I love you because, why? You are mine. You see, those words, you are mine, could be a little intimidating, couldn't they? I mean, a master can own a slave and say, you are mine. That's not how we should hear these words from Jesus. We should hear them of the affection of a parent. You are mine. Follow along with me in verse 10. I want to explore a little bit of this parental relationship and this parental affection. Jesus says, and I am glorified in them. I am glorified in these disciples, these disciples who I call my own. Now that's an almost unbelievable and incomprehensible statement that Jesus would be glorified in us, but it makes perfect sense in the context of a parental relationship. Why? Because every parent is proud of their child. It's almost an unavoidable aspect of a conversation with any parent that at some point in time you're going to be told about their exploits of their children. We try not to do it, but it is unavoidable. The book of Proverbs says that the glory of a parent is their child. The glory of a father is in their son. The glory of a mother is in their daughter. That simply means what we, the, the truth that we experience. Parents are proud of their children. And here we read that we are the glory of Jesus. And it's through this parental analogy that we begin to grasp how Jesus is glorified in us. You know, parents are expected to love their kids. My mom tells me on a regular basis that she loves me. And I'm glad to know that she loves me. But I have to say that those words of affection have kind of 
they don't really kind of grip me. It's almost uh, an anticipated. I reflected last Sunday that you almost expect Jesus to love you. It's kind of his job. It's what he does in the same way as a parent loves a kid. But I'll tell you the words that still, that still stick with me. Uh, they're the words of, I'm proud of you. So just a few months ago, as the church celebrated their 10th anniversary, our 10th anniversary, I got a phone call from mom and dad, and they said, I'm proud of you. And I'll tell you what, maybe it's the rarity of those words, uh, maybe it's the, uh, the power of those words, but they, they really, really matter. And they really, really buoy the Spirit. And here we have the same words of Jesus Christ speaking to those whom he calls his own. He, we are his glory, which expresses not only his affection for his own, but also his pride in you and me, like a parent with a child. I hope I don't push this into the realm of sentimentality, but imagine Jesus Christ beaming with pride as he looks at you and looks at me and says, that one, that one there, that one's my own, and I'm proud of them. C.S. Lewis says it like this, to please God, to be a real ingredient in God's happiness. To not only be loved by God, kind of anticipated. To not only be loved by God, to not only be pitied, but to be delighted in. Like an like a artist delights in his work, or a father delights in their son. It seems impossible, as if it were a weight of glory, a weight or a burden of glory, too impossible to bear, but yet it is so. And the really encouraging thing, remember how he reflected about the, the, the lack of comprehension for these disciples? All they said was, I believe you come from God, and Jesus says, apparently, good, that I can work with that. These disciples aren't much to look at. Within the next chapter, they're all going to turn tail and desert Christ. Yet, right, even still, even still, he calls them his own, and says, these, these are the ones in whom I am glorified. And I wonder if any of us this morning could stand to reflect, despite what is ever in the past, despite what lies in the future, if we would benefit from remembering that you are his, and he calls you his own the object of his affection, and you are the source of his pride. There are a few statements that can buoy the soul more than the words, I'm proud of you. And yet these are the same words that Jesus says to each of those whom he calls his own. And so our term of endearment, you are mine. Finally, what does he do for those whom he calls his own? can follow along in your sermon notes. He prays for us. He keeps us, protects us, sends us, sanctifies us. We're not going to consider each one of these. Let me draw your attention simply to the last point. It's found in verse 19. For their sake I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified. I just want to unpack that just very briefly. Those, that word consecrate and word sanctify are the same words. What's being implied here is that Jesus is preparing himself. He's setting him, himself 
in preparation for some future endeavor, like an athlete would strap on their cleats and get ready for the game, like a soldier would buckle his belt and get ready for the battle. Jesus is consecrating himself, preparing himself for some future ordeal. What is that future ordeal for which he is consecrating himself? Well, of course, it's the cross which looms so prominently in his imagination. You know, the Bible gives you and me many reasons why Jesus died. We're told that Jesus went to the cross in obedience to the Father's will. We're told that Jesus went to the cross because of the joy set before him. But here, we're told another tender reason why Jesus went to the cross. For them. For those whom he calls his own. What I want us to appreciate is that Jesus' affection for his own, for his disciples, does not remain in sentiment only, but it is accompanied by action. And while the work of his cross has come to a completion, his other work continues. Follow along with me. In verse 9, we read that Jesus prays for his own. You know what? Jesus has not stopped praying for his own. Verse 12, we read that he has kept his own under the name of God, meaning that he remained in the faith. He still keeps his own. Continuing in verse 12, we're told that he guards his own. He guards his own from the world. He guards his own from the evil one. And he still guards his own. Almost the images of a parent standing vigil over their child, watching them, protecting them, keeping them from all that would assault the soul. And that is what Jesus still does for you and me. He keeps his own. He keeps you and me. And I wonder, I think sometimes we feel like life is up to us. That if we're going to make it through, then we've got to do it. And we've got to do it on our own. That's simply not true. And that is a lonely and uncertain place to be. And the good news is that you and I are not alone. That like a parent standing watch over their children, Jesus stands watch over you and me. I wonder if this morning any of us feel alone. Feel like the weight of the world's on your shoulders and it all is up to you. It's not true. Jesus stands watch over you. He stands watch over his own. Again, as I've suggested, that we can only touch some of the big ideas that we find in this great pair, in this great uh, and final prayer. But here we find some important, we find an important question of who do you say that I am? And these disciples have been receptive. And they have grasped the crux of the revelation, the identity of the Son in relation to the Father. And that is enough. That is a good place to begin. And he calls them his own. With all the pride of a parent. And secondly, we're told that his affection for you and me does not remain in sentiment only, but he takes action. He guards, he keeps, he protects, he prays. He even lays down his life for those whom he calls his own. I hope you find that encouraging. Let's draw our thoughts to a conclusion. Some years ago, sadly, I lost a wedding ring. I was playing in some lake and off it flew. And despite my best efforts, I could not find it. Well, inside the humorous story, I think I may have shared this with you, but I tried to replace it with a ring from Walmart. And that lasted about four hours before Jennifer said, what is that hideous thing on your finger? 
So the original, back to the serious part of the story, the original ring had this verse on it that says that, uh, it said, I am my beloved's. And that's the same thing was on mine as it was on hers. I am my beloved's. And you see, that's the proper response to the sentiment of you are mine. The proper response is, well, I am yours. And I hope that's the response that is prompted at least in part by this passage. With all the possessiveness and pride of a parent, Jesus looks at us and says, these are my own. And like any parent, he keeps watch over his children. He whispers in our ears that you are mine. And like a child, you and I can turn to him and say, yes, yes, I am yours as well. Let me pray. Oh God, so draw our hearts to you. So guide our minds. So fill our imaginations. So control our will that we may be wholly yours, dedicated to you. And then use us, O oh God, as you will. Amen.